0: Hello, Christ Chapel, good morning. Hello to all of you who are at one of our campuses or our internet campus. So glad that you've chosen to join with us to worship this morning. It's my great privilege to say to you, open your Bibles, please. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter nine. You'll also need a copy of the sermon notes. It's gonna be important that you write some things down also. So pen, pencil, any writing utensil will do sermon notes, open Bibles, and then we we will be ready uh, to go. But before we do anything while you're doing that, I also want to go ahead and take up an offering. And so if you give online, thank you so much for giving. If you'd like to text, in to give, it's very simple. Jen and I have given this way before, just text in the code that's on the screen and it'll send you a link and it's very easy to give and uh, so thankful for uh, how you give Christ Chapel. You have enabled us to do so much ministry. You've been a part of so many uh, great things, which reminds me uh, a few weeks ago, if you'll remember in Nehemiah chapter five, we talked about how great things follow generosity. When when, when God's people are generous, great things follow. And if you'll remember at the very end of that sermon that day, we took up an offering. And after that offering, I just wanted you to know that you guys gave above what was weekly budgeted needed for ministry, which was awesome. You guys were super generous with that offering. Then we went ahead right after that and challenged you to go even above and beyond the regular offering. And we took up an offering we called Share the Love Offering because it was on uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, when all of you were shut in with Snowmageddon. And we took up that offering. And what we said, we were gonna share the love. We're gonna share the love with Union Gospel Mission who helps families who are experiencing homelessness and Adara in Ethiopia who helps families, mostly single mother families, who it's basically their... um, job is they usually go through the dump and scavenge for anything to provide for their families. And Adara takes them in, teaches them a skill and a trade, helps to feed and educate their children. It's a wonderful, wonderful ministry. And so we asked you, okay, will you be generous? Because great things follow generosity. Would you share the love with those two organizations? And we told you that whatever you gave, we would match. And so just so you know, before that Sunday, we had set aside $20,000 to match what you gave. And that wasn't nearly enough because you gave $140,000 just to share the love. Yeah, amazing, just to share the love offering. So those two organizations combined are gonna get over a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, just from you sharing the love with them. And I can't wait to hear all of the stories that we're gonna hear about how those great things that God does follows the generosity of his people. So thank you, thank you, thank you for giving. I'm excited for the future of our church and what God is going to continue to do. Now, let me go ahead and address the elephant in the room or wherever you are, and that is the basically announcement that Governor Abbott gave this past week when he talked about he was repealing the mask mandate in the state of Texas, and he was allowing all the venues to go to 100% capacity. Uh, Certainly that was encouraging in many ways because COVID cases are going down and the number of those being vaccinated or even the vaccinations that are available are going up. And so it's a great combination of many factors. And so you're probably asking, okay, Cody, what is going to change at Christ Chapel? Well, as you will remember, we are elder led. We make decisions unanimously. That means that all of our elders must be on the same page before we move forward. 10 to zero. We never take any kind of split kind of vote or move forward without one, two, three, four, five men. We always move forward unanimously. And so I wanna tell you what the elders' decisions are unanimously as we go forward, okay? We want to make these decisions uh, certainly in a very calculated way because we understand that we are somewhat overseers of your spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, and so we want to shepherd you well. So we want to be calculated in these things, but we also want to be considerate because we know that so many people are in different places and spaces with these ideas about reopening. And so um, here are the, just two very quick things. First, beginning next Sunday, March 14th, masks will be recommended but optional at all of our physical campuses, okay? Now, very quickly, let me just say something about masks. Uh, masks somehow in our society have turned into a visible symbol that's become a window into people's souls. And that's nervous laughter that you're giving there because you know it's true. And people have looked at those masks and they peer into people's souls and they make so many judgments about that particular individual, They they, they look and they think, oh, I see their heart. They care or they don't care. Uh, They're left-leaning or they're right-leaning. They're a dog person or a cat person. You know, they like coffee or they like tea. I, I mean, there are so many judgments based on that physical symbol. And let me just tell you what we're not going to do here. It's that. We're not going to judge one another based on these physical symbols. If you will remember, let's go back quickly. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Let's go back quickly to the New Testament. Do you remember in the New Testament there was a council called based on a physical symbol that some people thought you had to have in order to be a part of the family of God? And they said, no, 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 we're not based on physical symbols, we're based on what God has done inside a person's soul, inside their heart. And so we're not going to judge people. One of our core values is that we are grace-oriented. We are going to hold you to what the scriptures say, nothing more or nothing less. And so please check the judgment at the door, wherever you come in. We are going to be considerate of one another. And that leads me to my second thing. So beginning next Sunday, remember first thing, beginning next Sunday, Mass will be recommended but optional. Second thing is the elders are praying through a short-term plan to increase capacity at all of our venues. Now what that means is, Lord willing, soon we will be able to increase some of the capacity, but I want you to know that there will be spaces at all of our campuses that will provide some more social distance for those who feel that's necessary. We want to be considerate of you. And so we will have some of those spaces available. But uh, the, that plan will be coming soon. I don't have any specifics, but if you will, uh, be praying for the elders. Uh, they certainly covet your prayers. We follow God's spirit. Uh, we, we do not follow uh, all, all the mandates necessarily. We follow God's spirit. We want to be considered of the mandates. We want to be considered of the CDC. We want to be considered of your spiritual, mental, and physical well-being. So that's all of the updates I have to share with you right now. Please check back in and certainly we will be communicating with you uh, throughout the week and in the very near term. Okay, totally switching gears now. When I was in college, I had a holiday job for two of the, the, the years of the week right between Christmas and New Year. And I was a courtesy driver for the Cotton Bowl. The Cotton Bowl, you know, being the football game that's here in the Metroplex, and I actually was a courtesy driver when it was at the Cotton Bowl, and uh, what my job was basically for that week was I would drive around families pretty much to go wherever they wanted to go, usually while the spouse was coaching or at practice or some team function. So I would sit in a room, they would call, and I would answer, and they'd say, hey, you know, Miss McGillicuddy wants to take the kids to the Galleria to go ice skating. You know, come pick her up at this hotel. Great. So I'd drive over, pick them up, drive them to the Galleria, drop them off, and then I would say, okay, what time do you want me to be back here? Give me three hours. Great. And I would just sit around for three hours and do nothing and wait for them, drive them back. That was a courtesy driver. That was my job. I had two enormous problems fulfilling my job. First, I grew up in small town Texas. The biggest city I had ever driven in was Waco, Texas. Now I'm asked to shuttle families with small children around the DFW Metroplex. That's problem number one. Problem two, smartphones did not exist. I know that's hard for some of you to believe, but back when I was a courtesy driver, you had to, if you were gonna get directions, you had to go on the computer, those did exist, but you had to go into a thing called Maps Co, and you had to type in your address and where you were and the address of where you were going, or you just had, which was what I had in my backseat, the big hard copy of Rand McNally. Now, can you imagine how embarrassing that was, me being a courtesy driver you know, Miss McGillicuddy calling up going, surely this guy knows where he's going. And I'm like, hold on, Miss McGillicuddy, let me pull out the Rand McNally. It didn't solicit a lot of confidence from those who I was driving around that I knew exactly what I was doing. So I figured out pretty quickly, I've got to come up with a system for how to navigate the DFW Metroplex without looking like an idiot, basically. And so here was my system. My system was find a bigger road. Very simple. That was my system. Cody, if you get lost, find a bigger road. And then once you find a bigger road, guess what I do next? Find a bigger road. And then after I find a bigger road, I find a bigger road and I find a bigger road until I finally find a highway that's big enough that I know. So I'm like, okay, I know 35, I know 75, I know 635. So if I get lost on some side street trying to take somebody somewhere, I just need to find a bigger road. And I'm literally looking for stoplights and how many cars are going by because I have no idea where I'm going. And it turned out they did hire me back one more time, but then they didn't hire me back anymore after that. But it it was a system that worked for me for when I got lost. And I know that's not a very common thing for people today because you have smartphones where you just say, hey, Siri, take me here. And then you just go. It just magically tells you exactly where to turn unless you follow the Michael Scott one and you turn into the lake, but don't do that. But here's my point. We all need systems that we know that we can follow that will help us be found whenever we feel lost. In this past year especially, many of us feel lost. I don't know if you have intentionally or unintentionally walked away from God. I don't know if life has hit you with a haymaker and left you dazed and confused. But there are many times where we can feel like we are just lost and we don't know which way to turn and we certainly don't know where God is. And we've gotta have some sort of system in our brain, some sort of system in our heart that comes from the scriptures that we know, I just need to take this next step. And when I take this next step, I take this next step. And this will help me find my way back to God. And that's what we're gonna talk about today from Nehemiah chapter nine. So in Nehemiah chapter nine, I just wanna pick up where we kind of left off because last week, uh, Dr. Murphy did chapter eight. And remember chapter eight, remember the breakdown of the book, very simple breakdown. The first part of Nehemiah is about building a wall. The second part about Nehemiah is building a people. It's building up the people to inhabit the city of God. And that's very important because it's going to play into what we're going to talk about today. Because remember, the reason why the wall was torn down was because the people walked away from God. That's why the wall was torn down in the first place. And so in order for the wall to remain uplifted, the people need to uplift their hearts to God. In order to inhabit God's place, they have to be God's people. And so that's why he starts to build up God's people in the second half of the book. And they started doing that in chapter eight. Remember when they call for Ezra to read from the book of the Law? And he comes and he reads, and the people begin to, to weep, and, and they say, the leaders say, "Don't weep. This is an exciting thing. You, you should be happy. Be happy that we are back in the city of God, that we have His word, that we can hear from Him." And they want it to be a time of rejoicing. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 17, it says there was great rejoicing. And they end up celebrating uh, the festival of booths, which basically was a festival set aside for the people to celebrate how God led them through the desert out of slavery and into the promised land into this great place that God had promised them that he would dwell with them. And it was about God's faithfulness to them over those 40 years of wondering and how God had delivered them. Great celebration. So we're here, we're in the city, we're all together, God's people. We're centered on God's word. Let's celebrate God's faithfulness. And then two days after that, the scene drastically changes. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. The party is over. Two days later, They have gone from feasting to fasting. These symbols that are used are symbols of grief, symbols of remorse. And you go, what changed in two days? The the thing that changed in two days was that very fact that I mentioned to you earlier, that the people realized if their hearts weren't with god then this thing wasn't going to last they they put in all this great work and god did this miraculous work to rebuild the wall in 52 days but if their hearts aren't his then it's all for naught then then it doesn't matter and I know through this rebuilding series, many of you have been praying for great things to be rebuilt in your lives, whether it's uh, different things going on in your relationships or in, in your families or even in, in your work life, career, all, all those kinds of things, even in your spiritual life. And maybe God has done a miraculous work in your life and you're so thankful for what he's done over the past you know, eight weeks or so. And you're going, praise God. He's rebuilt it. Well, here's what must accompany that, is your heart. Because the wall was torn down because their hearts weren't his. If we're going to maintain the work that God has done, that his, that his wall would remain built, then our hearts have to remain with him. It's almost as if the people realize that they've gotten a second chance. God, you gave us a second chance here. And now we realize we don't want to squander it. We don't want to do what we had done before. We don't want to go the same way that it's gone the past 140 years. And so, God, we are in a very sober, sober state. That's why they're in sackcloth. That's why they have earth and ashes on their head is because they're remorseful. They understand what got them there, and they never want to go back again. And you know, that's an important lesson uh, for us. Um, sometimes it's good to get to a sobering place where we understand the consequences of our sin. I, I, I wish that on no one. I don't, I don't want you to, to suffer. I, I don't want anything like that. But sometimes we can understand how dark and dead end a road that is that we realize we never wanna go down it again. And sometimes that's a great realization to come to. And that's the realization they come to in Nehemiah chapter nine. And they come up with a system in a sense, I'm I'm using that word, a system in a sense for how to find their way back to God individually, but also collectively as a people. And so what I wanna do is break down this system in Nehemiah chapter nine and show you how they return back to God individually, but as a people and how you can have that system in your head of here's the next step I take. If I feel lost and away and far from God, I just take this next step, and then I just take this next step. You find the bigger road, and you find the bigger road, and you find yourself back to God. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter nine. We're gonna be, uh, begin in verse two. The way back to God begins with a knowledge of God that leads to confession. The way back to God begins with a knowledge of God that leads to confession. You see, for the people, in order to find their way back to God, the one who had done this miraculous rebuilding work in 52 days, they had to realize what they were going back to. They had to have a place or or, or a target or uh, specifically a person they were aiming for. God was true north. God is our true north. That's where we're aiming. That's who we want to be with. That's who's conforming us into the image of his son. Jesus is our true north. That's where we're aiming. And so in order to go back, we have to say, where is back? Back is with him. And that's what they set their sights on. And beginning with the knowledge of him, which was shared in Nehemiah chapter 8. But then beginning in verse 2, it says, And the Israelites, as they were mourning and and grieving and remorseful, the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They took ownership of their people, God's chosen people, for their own sin. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of it, They made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So they realize oh my gosh, we put ourselves in the position for this wall to be torn down. We put ourselves in a vulnerable position to be oppressed by all of our enemies around us because we had walked away from God. That's a really hard fact for us to understand, a really hard reality for us to grasp, that if we're feeling distant from God, let me go ahead and tell you, God did not move. I did. I, I walked away. I turned my back. I ignored him. That's me. That's, that's on me. That's not on him and that's why the people are grieving and so they say let us stand up and talk about true north let's talk about god and so it says for a third of, it says for a quarter of the day which was 3 hours they read from god's word they set their sights on him this is who he is this is his character this is his faithfulness this is our god who has called us his own, who has set us apart as his very own people and given us his name. We are his children. So they begin with the knowledge of God for three hours. And then for the next three hours, they confess their sins. And I know that when we talk about confession of sin, sometimes we shy away from that. One, because I don't know if, if we're scared to call ourselves sinners, uh, I am a sinner. You know that about me. If you don't know me, then you might not know that. But those who do know me, they know that I'm a sinner. They know that I'm fallible. They, they know that I, I, I misstep. They know that I sin. And there's grace. There's grace. But sometimes I feel like we don't want to confess. But you know, in the New Testament, Paul tells us, confess your sins to one another. That's a biblical instruction, a biblical imperative in the one another's. Not just love one another, pray for one another, comfort one another, all great one another's, and confess your sins to one another. Why? Because we've got to be honest about who we are. Because if we're honest about who we are, then we're honest about who God is. Because God is the one who came to save us from our sins. He, listen, folks, he doesn't look gracious or forgiving or kind or merciful or slow to anger, abounding in love, if, we, if, if we're not the sinners that we are. When we're honest about ourselves, we can be honest about who God is. Folks, there's, there's nothing to hide about the, the, the disparity between who we are and who God is. God is holy and we are not. That is the fact. And praise God, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sins so that, we could bridge, that he could bridge that gap to us. That's that's why we preach the gospel here is because we know that we as individuals will never meet up. And so we confess our sins to one another because when we confess our sins to one another, it confesses how great God is. It confesses his nature and his character. You see, that's why in this point, when I talk about confession, so often all that's mentioned is just confession of sin. But confession is a two-sided coin, When we confess our sins, we also confess how great God is, how forgiving and loving and gracious and merciful that he is to want us, to want a relationship with me, with you. You see, confession means accepting God's truth and admitting your offense. And the people do that. The Israelites do that when they confess their sins to God, there are no excuses, only admission. This is a, I have sinned against you, God. I have turned my back. I have chased after other things. Flat out, period, end of sentence. This is not a modern day apology to God. Where people say, "You know, I'm sorry if you were offended," but really, you're just telling them that that's their fault, that they're offended. You know, they're too. I'm, I'm sorry, you're so sensitive. You know, you ever get those apologies? That that's not the way that people confess their sins to God. It's woe is me. You are holy. I'm not. And the fact that you want to do this great work to protect me, to provide for me, to give me fellowship and communion with you, gosh, Lord, how, how gracious, how kind. Yes, like I, that's, that's me if I fall short, but you, God, you are amazing. That's why confession isn't just about how bad I am. Yes, that's true. It's how great God is, it's a two-sided coin. And don't forget that. It's a great thing to confess, a great thing to confess. That's why we're encouraged to confess our sins to one another, and that's what they do. They stand in front of God and confess the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And let us be that type of believer That when you start finding your way away from God, you start saying, God, I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna confess your truth and your word and the whole truth about me and nothing but the truth. That's the next step. That's the first step to find your way back to God. And that's what the Israelites do. But then they find their next step after that is that confession of sin leads to repentance of our waywardness from God when we confess our sins, when we admit the whole truth and nothing but the truth, now we begin to repent away from our waywardness. Now, I need to define what repentance means. Repentance is oftentimes associated with an emotion or with sorrow, and and certainly uh, repentance can involve sorrow, but the biblical definition of repentance is to turn the other way. It, it, it's to, to change your mind completely. It's to go 180 degrees back away from the way that you once were going. That's what biblical repentance means. And that's exactly what the people find themselves doing is they're not walking away from God anymore. Now they're turning back to him. You see, there, the, you see the steps there in a sense. It's I've confessed, God, I'm away from you. And I should not be here. It's my fault that I'm so far from you. So I am going to repent. I'm going to turn around and face you. I'm going to head toward you. And that's what they do. If you look at verse 30, it says, many years that you or the Lord bore with them and they warned them. And God warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't turn around. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Year after year after year, prophet after prophet after prophet, God was calling them back to himself. And they continued to turn and go the other way. And that's actually what verse 6 through 31 shows us in Nehemiah. It's really just, uh, it just recounts Israel's history of how God calls for his people and they turn their back and walk away from him. That that's basically all it is. I've given you a chart on your sermon notes and this will come up on the screen because I just want you to see this. This is exactly how this goes. Verse 6 begins in creation. And why does it begin in creation? It begins in creation because remember, God is faithful. God is good. What he created was good. Why did Adam and, I mean, when Adam and Eve lost fellowship with God, who left? Adam and Eve. God didn't leave. So it starts off with the character of God in creation. And then it goes, uh, so that's verse 6 is where it starts. But then what happens? Israel's waywardness. The people harden their hearts. But then what happens in verse 17? But God is gracious. Very next verse. Well, the people are idolatrous. (laughs) They go the other way. But then God is merciful. But then the people disobey. God disciplines them, but he also provides for them salvation. But then the people turn to evil. Then God delivers. You see, you see this back and forth, this dance. God, God is for his people, and they turn their back, and they walk away from him. But I love how the section ends in verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. Guys, I would have given up by line one on that chart. Maybe line two. But I, man, what's that old saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And we try to fool God going, I'm yours, and then we walk the other way. And he goes, no, I got you. I'll be merciful, I'll be gracious, I'll keep calling back to you. Come back to me, come back to me. And the people realize how faithful God has been and they confess their sins and they say, we are gonna repent, we're gonna change our mind, and we are gonna change the direction of our lives and we're gonna walk back to you. You are our new direction, you are our true north. But you see, repentance of waywardness necessitates accountability to help keep you on track with God. You need accountability to help keep you on track with God. Part of the accountability starts with, it's really, there's really three things to this accountability. First part of this accountability is you need to understand your susceptibility to sin, you need to understand the reality of your depravity. It just is who you are, and God knows it, and that's why he paid for it. You know, there's that saying, um, basically, those who, who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. If you don't learn from history, then you're just gonna keep walking away from God and walking into the same dead end, same destruction. So understand your own uh, proclivity to, to sin. But the, the other forms of accountability are really community. Do you realize they're all together confessing their sins and they're all together confessing how great and faithful and good God is as they recount this history. And really what's cool is in, in the text, it's almost this antiphonal nature where it's like God is great and then the other side is saying yeah, and we walked away. But God is merciful, and we're idolatrous. But God is gracious and forgiving, and we're wicked and evil. But God, and it always ends up with but God. It starts with God, and it ends with God. And praise God for that. And you're going to need accountability to keep you from always turning and walking wayward. And one of those things that you can do to keep yourself accountable is to make a commitment to God you see repentance of our waywardness leads to a commitment to God and that's what the people end up doing is they make this commitment to him in verses 33 and 38 it says yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes our Levites and our priests. They make a commitment to God. And we're going to study what that commitment was in chapter 10 next week. But what you need to understand is you might need to make a commitment to God. And so that's why I've put on your sermon notes, I asked you to print them off. I've asked you to print those off because you need to do some heart work. And that heart work is homework. You need to take that section home and you need to walk through this path back to God that confesses your sin, that repents from your waywardness and says, who's gonna hold you accountable and make a commitment? And then there's a line for you to sign. Just like the people in Israel signed their covenant, you need to make that signature on that line as well because written plans confirm right priorities everything that's important in your life you sign for you, you sign a, a marriage license you sign a, a mortgage you sign for you you'll sign for lunch when you go out right after this you'll sign at the grocery store that you're going to pay this back it, that's a commitment commitments require signatures Written plans confirm right priorities. And so you need to go back home and do some heart work to find your way back to God because that commitment that you make to him only reciprocates the Lord's loyalty to you. When when you're thinking and you're contemplating, Lord, what commitment do you want me to make? And and by the way, that commitment, all all I'm asking you to do is just take the next step. Next step. I'm not saying, you know, commit to do this for decades. I'm saying next step, next step. But it's just reciprocating the loyalty that the, love, the, the Lord has shown you. Just like it begins and ends with him, verse six to verse 31, just the Lord has been loyal to you. So much so that he sent his son. And that's why we're gonna get to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a minute, uh, whether you're on our internet campus or at any of our venues. That's the picture we always have in front of us. It's the Lord's loyalty of sending Jesus to rescue us because we'd never find our way back to him by ourselves. That's why he came to seek and to save the lost. But because he came and to seek and save the lost and he saved me and he saved you if you place your trust in him, then we can always find our way back to him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are faithful and that you're true. Lord God, I thank you that you do not hide yourself from us. You've never hidden yourself from us, nor do you even hide your way back to you when we find ourselves bewildered, lost, confused, down in the dumps. It doesn't matter. You're always calling us back. Come back to me. Come back to the place where you can find refuge, where you can find strength, where you can find hope, where you can find peace, where you can find provision. Come back to me, come back to me. Lord God, may be, this be a banner day in the life of our people that we say, I'm going back to God. It's what you died for, it's what you paid for, it's what you've planned for. Call us back, Lord Jesus, amen.